senators, you know, as soon as we put in that new government, the first rule they pass is to make the Russian language essentially illegal in Donbass and Lugansk, where 90% of the population are Russian. And, they, and there's then peaceful uprising, which people begin dying. You know, they turn violent. Now, which side made them violent is a dispute. But it's not a dispute. Every conspiracy theory about Ukraine starts somewhere. All of these are widespread on Twitter and have done a considerable amount of damage to understanding Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. I'm Yulia, an independent political journalist, content creator, and most important of all, a concerned Ukrainian citizen. You're listening to FAQ U by Svidomi Media, your friendly neighborhood fact check for Russia's special disinformation operation. Today, we are addressing some of the most popular misinformation circulating on the World Wide Web in the form of a true FAQ, with bite-sized rebuttals to some of the most ill-informed Ukraine-related tweets the internet has to offer. But first, Let's start with an amuse-bouche of Western media tomfoolery. He gets into office the minute he gets there and he's told everybody, I'm going to sign the Minsk Accords and settle the peace with Russia. He, he suddenly pivots. And the, we don't know what happened, but the, the rational assumption is that the U.S. government told him he could not do that. Of the Victoria Newland and, and Anthony Blinken and April Haynes, oh, who's the DNI director of national intelligence, told them you cannot have a peace with Russia. Plus, people within, you know, ultra nationalists within Ukraine told them if you sign that, we're going to kill you. And a lot of people say, uh, anyway, that they threatened him with death, and that is pretty well documented. Wow, what a load of bullcrap. But also, does this gentleman need a glass of water? Anyway, FAQ his narrative, let's sort some of these popular theses out. Let's start with this tweet from Robert Bendix on Twitter, quote, I'm British and I'm furious about how Britain is treating Russia. The Yanks never got sanctioned after invading Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and my country helped them and participated in those conflicts. NATO agreed not to expand, so they're to blame, not Russia. End quote. Well, this one is just poorly scripted propaganda. Let's start with this. Any agreements made during late 80s until 1991 were not made with Russia but with the Soviet Union, an entity that legally ceased to exist, and all agreements with it are now void. NATO never promised the USSR not to expand. Here is what actually happened. The West's supposed violation of a pledge not to enlarge has been a key element in Putin's haunter Western narrative. In his speech at the Munich Security Conference in February 2007, he said, quote, We have a right to ask, against whom is this NATO? expansion intended? And what happened to the assurances our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? I would like to quote the speech of NATO General Secretary Mr. Warner in Brussels on 17th of May 1990. He said at the time that, quote, the fact that we are ready not to place a NATO army outside of German territory gives the Soviet Union a firm security guarantee. Where are these guarantees? End quote. 
What the Germans, Americans, British, and French did agree to in 1990 was that there would be no deployment of non-German NATO forces on the territory of the former GDR. This was exactly the point of Secretary James Baker's discussion with Gorbachev and his foreign minister, Eduard Shevardnadze. In 1990, very few people gave the possibility of a broader NATO enlargement to the East any serious thought. And this agreement to not deploy foreign troops on the territory of the former GDR was incorporated in Article 5 of the Treaty of the Final Settlement with respect to Germany, which was signed on September 12, 1990 by the foreign ministers of the two Germanys, the United States, Soviet Union, Britain, and France. Here are the provisions. Until Soviet forces had completed their withdrawal from the former GDR, only German territorial defense units not integrated into NATO would be deployed in that territory. There would be no increase in the numbers of troops or equipment of US, British, and French forces stationed in Berlin. Once Soviet forces had withdrawn, German forces assigned to NATO could be deployed in the former GDR, but foreign forces and nuclear weapons systems would not be deployed there. If every one of these commenters read the full text of the Werner speech cited by Putin, it would be clear to them that the Secretary General's comments referred to NATO forces in Eastern Germany, not a broader commitment not to enlarge the alliance. Russia Behind the Headlines published an interview with Gorbachev, who was Soviet president during the discussions and treaty negotiations about German reunification. In other words, the man this supposed promise was made to. When asked why Gorbachev did not, quote, insist that the promises made to you, particularly U.S. Secretary of State James Baker's promise that NATO would not expand into the East, be legally encoded, end quote, by the interviewer, he replied, quote, the topic of NATO expansion was not discussed at all, and it wasn't brought up in those years. Another issue we brought up was discussed, making sure that NATO's military structures would not advance and that additional armed forces would not be deployed on the territory of the then GDR after German reunification. Baker's statement was made in that context. Everything that could have been and needed to be done to solidify that political obligation was done and fulfilled. End quote. Gorbachev continued, quote, The agreement on a final settlement with Germany said that no new military structures would be created in the eastern part of the country, that is, Germany. No additional troops would be deployed. No weapons of mass destruction would be placed there. It has been obeyed all these years. End quote. To make it perfectly clear, Gorbachev criticized NATO enlargement and called it a violation of the spirit of the assurances given Moscow in 1990, in his personal opinion. But he made it a point to clarify that there was no promise regarding broader enlargement. Several years after German reunification in 1997, NATO stated, quote, current and foreseeable security environment, end quote, does not provide for permanent stationing of substantial combat forces on the territory of new NATO members. Up until the Russian military occupation of Crimea, there was virtually no stationing of any NATO combat forces on the territory of new members. Since 2014, NATO has increased the presence of its military forces in the Baltic region and Central Europe because of Russia, not the other way around. Next up, this tweet by user at ethelred1917 on Twitter. <whistles> Quote, Ukraine military despise Russian people. Bundarites enjoy killing Russian ethnics. No equivalent on the Russian side. 
NATO media works hard to create outrage when it is Ukraine that consistently commits war crimes at every level against Russians slash civilians, end quote. Interesting, because the war is taking place on the territory of Ukraine, not Russia, and Ukraine has no access to Russian civilians. But anyways, Russian bombings and missile strikes in Ukraine have been well documented. They ruined hospitals, apartment buildings, schools, and let's not forget the theater in Mariupol where hundreds of children and adults were sheltering and died. What about the Kramatorsk rail station, where thousands were waiting to escape the Russian onslaught? and also died. When Russians withdrew from towns like Bucha, Chernihiv, and Sumy, horrific scenes of civilian carnage, mass graves, and reports of rape and torture were revealed. Several world leaders have accused Russia of committing genocide against the people of Ukraine. In March, 45 organizations for security and cooperation in Europe began proceeding to, quote, establish the facts and circumstances of possible cases of war crimes and crimes against humanity, and to collect, consolidate, and analyze this information with a view to presenting it to relevant accountability mechanisms, end quote. This report, issued on April 14th, found, quote, clear patterns of international humanitarian law violations by Russian forces, end quote. It recommended further investigations to, quote, establish individual criminal responsibility for war crimes, end quote. The government of Ukraine, Ukrainian NGOs, and the International Criminal Court are still collecting evidence for use in future legal proceedings. And evidence they don't lack. Witnesses at the hearing discussed the findings of the OSCE report, examined evidence being collected to document Russian war crimes in Ukraine, and analyzed paths to bring perpetrators to justice. Those were not your typical war crimes out of negligence. They were deliberate and vile. 16,940 injured civilians. 9,044 killed, 26,384 victims among Ukrainians, 103,325 war crimes registered, 502 children died, and 120,000 civilian buildings were ruined. A similar picture can also be observed in Russia's invasion of Chechnya and Georgia. In fact, recently, following a 12-year legal battle, the European Court of Human Rights ruled in a landmark case finding Russia responsible for major human rights violations during the 2008 war against Georgia. The ECHR ruled that Russia deliberately prevented Georgian nationals from returning to their homes in occupied regions. Furthermore, Moscow failed to investigate the series of events which preceded the active phase of the 2008 war or those which came after the ceasefire agreement concluded on 12th of August 2008. If that's not enough for you, you can just look up pictures of Grozny, the capital of Chechnya, during Russia's second invasion of the country. Hint, it looks just like Mariupol. This one from at Visegrad24, a news agency, states, quote, the International Olympic Committee today decided to recommend that Russian athletes should be allowed to compete at the Paris Olympics next year, end quote. Should they? The Center for Strategic Communication of Ukraine explains that Russians are simply being silenced about their attitude towards the war in order to compete under neutral flags. First of all, the neutral Olympic flag does not prevent Russia from using international sports for its political purposes. After all, the so-called false flag operations are already a familiar expansion strategy for the Kremlin. 
The vast majority of Russian Olympians are at the same time officers of the armed forces and other law enforcement structures of the aggressor state. They are members of the Central Sports Clubs of the Army CSKA, or the Sports Society Dynama, among the founders of which are the Federal Security Service, Russian National Guard, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and other law enforcement agencies of Russia. One example would be the Winter Olympics in Beijing in the year of the full-scale invasion. Russian athletes won 32 medals. Among those were servicemen from CSKA, 14 medals. Their fellows from Dynama won the same number. In total, 88% of all awards of the Beijing Olympics in 2022 were won by athletes representing law enforcement agencies fighting in Ukraine. At the Summer Olympics in Tokyo in 2021, for instance, Army athletes won 45 medals out of 71 won by Russia. That is 63%. Dynama Society reported on 29 medals of its members. In total, CSKA and Dynama took all the medals of the Russian team. Here is another example. The broadcast of the Olympics from Tokyo, which took place in the summer of 2021, six months before the invasion of Ukraine, was used by Russian television to incite hostility between the two countries. The state channel turned off the broadcast of the ceremony at the time when the national team of Ukraine walked at the opening with its flag. Channel 1, for instance, explained it this way, quote, It's time to treat them and explain who, where, and how. There is no reason for us to look at the national team of Ukraine. You need to understand that the period of not doing anything has already ended. It's time to slap them. End quote. That sound neutral to you? The most recent example of a Russian athlete covertly supporting Russia's invasion is Maria Smirnova, who competed under the neutral flag at the international fencing competition, while posting proud photos of her military serviceman brother on her Instagram and other social media profiles. Russian athletes are required one thing, to be able to compete under a neutral flag, and that is not to support Russia's invasion. Clearly, it's not enforced. Russian athletes also pay taxes to the Russian government for all the money they earn from sponsorships and participation in the sporting events. All of that money from taxes goes to sponsoring the war in Ukraine. One very important thing to understand is that, in Russia, there are practically no Olympic athletes who are not firmly embedded in the military machine of the Russian regime. Even coaches and athlete instructors are in the military. Russia also has an advantage. Russian invaders have already killed 184 Ukrainian athletes who will never be able to compete for medals at the Olympics, or represent Ukraine, or live. So, can Russian athletes really be neutral? The answer is no. And now on to my favorite. At Ukraine World on Twitter, <whistles> quoted Maria Zakharova, Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, in relation to Ukrainians wanting to claim Borsh as theirs and only theirs, and not wanting to share it with others, as xenophobia, extremism, and Nazism. Well, according to Alex Kakcharov, a London-based political and economic risk analyst of Belarusian descent, the Russian Foreign Ministry's insistence on so-called Russian borscht is, quote, another attempt at cultural appropriation by Moscow, end quote. Adding that while, quote, a number of cultures claim borscht to be theirs, Ukraine, Belarus, Poland, and Russia, Ukraine has the strongest claim for the dish, end quote. Olesa Lu, a New York-based chef and head consultant for Vaselka, the iconic Ukrainian diner in New York City's East Village, says that, quote, Borsh is most definitely from Ukraine. 
I say it's Ukrainian not just from a nationalistic point of view, but because the soup hails from the land of Ukraine and those ingredients have been found in the country's archaeological records into the distant past. End quote. Okay, but what about the millions of Russians who insist that their favorite beet soup is in fact Russian then? Russians might claim borscht as their own, but ultimately, it's a dish they acquired through their occupation of Ukraine. According to Lu, borscht most likely made its way into mainstream Russian cuisine during the Soviet occupation of Ukraine, as a result of a concerted effort on the part of the Kremlin. The Soviet Union was made up of more than a hundred distinct cultural identities, so in an effort to, quote, collectivize the country, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin tasked the Soviet Commissar of Food Anastas Mikoyan with creating a national cuisine. According to an article by the BBC, quote, Mikoyan's official study of cultural melting pots and mass food production led him to the United States, where he fell in love with hamburgers, hot dogs, and ice cream. On his return, Mikoyan launched factory-produced ice cream across the Soviet Union and popularized efficient kitchen meals like katlete, or minced meat patties, in everyday cooking. In 1939, he published the propaganda-heavy book of tasty and healthy food, a standardized cookbook that was often gifted to newlywed couples in the Soviet Union from the Communist Party, a book that is still in print to this day in Russia. End quote. Liu said that, quote, Mikoyan needed to mass-produce a cultural identity for these Soviet foods. It's fascinating to read what he picked from each place, be it Ukraine or Georgia, while remaining vague since at the time most ingredients were not widely available across the Soviet Union. The cookbook made all these dishes part of Soviet culture and thereby Russian, since Russia was the most important culture for the Soviets." End quote. So, what can we find in the Soviet Bible about borscht? Chapter 6, titled Soups, starts with cabbage-based shi, listing six different recipes, after which comes borscht, then summer borscht, and lastly, a differentiated Ukrainian borscht. So this is kind of like making an American cookbook with recipes for tacos, citing multiples, and then finishing it with Mexican tacos. And that's about how ridiculous that sounds. Not to mention that last year, UNESCO registered borscht as part of Ukrainian cultural identity and heritage. Ukraine has no problem with sharing borscht with other people. What Ukraine has a problem with is the constant appropriation of Ukrainian culture by Russia and presentation of it to the world as their own. Next, user at Master at Work Inc., a man of a few words, says, quote, Ukraine hates black people, end quote. Ukraine, along with much of Eastern Europe, is racially homogenous. Demographic data about Ukraine is typically broken down by ethnicity rather than race because the percentage of the population that is non-white and non-indigenous is incredibly small. Currently, fewer than 5% of Ukrainians self-identify as an ethnic group that is neither Ukrainian nor Russian. Because of this, Ukraine doesn't have a history of institutionalized racism against people of color, like, for example, in the United States, South Africa, or France. Individual experiences of race-based prejudice are entirely valid and are also most likely a result of cultural ignorance and lack of exposure to people of color on the part of the Ukrainians involved. In the 30 years since its independence from the Soviet Union, Ukraine has made rapid progress as a member of the global community and continues to improve today. These never end, do they? User at Joe Manorino US 
says that, quote, John Kirby finally admitted that the only way the Ukraine war will come to an end is through negotiation, but stated that negotiation comes only when Zelensky is ready to negotiate. Considering we are the one paying for this war, not Zelensky, that should be our decision, end quote. Well, my friend, this is a pretty clear misinterpretation of Kirby's statement. Rare Admiral Kirby, strategic communications coordinator for the U.S. National Security Council, stated that every war ends with negotiation, which is true, eventually. Kirby also said in March that a ceasefire on the part of Ukraine would effectively be a, quote, ratification of Russian conquest, end quote. In July, Kirby reiterated that Crimea belongs to Ukraine, that Crimea is Ukraine. It does not belong to Russia, and Russia has no business being on the peninsula in the first place. And Ukraine has every right to determine, quote, what targets it wants to pick in order to defend itself and try to reclaim its territory, end quote. When Kirby says that negotiations need to be at Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's discretion, he's making it clear that it is not the role of the West or any of Ukraine's allies or international partners to demand Ukraine sit down with Russian dictator Vladimir Putin when it is in a position to liberate the occupied regions and expel Russia from Ukraine without compromising its territorial sovereignty through negotiation. Please don't twist his words. And last, but certainly not least for this season's FAQ, at Arabgosar on Twitter says that, quote, not one more penny should be sent to fund Zelensky's war. Sidebar, it's Putin's war, but okay. The Biden regime death cultists refuse to negotiate a peaceful solution. President Trump could end this war in 24 hours, end quote. First and foremost, Representative Gosar, the appropriate way to refer to a former president of the United States is by their first and last name, Mr. Trump. He's not president, he's a former president. Actually, to be most accurate, he's twice impeached and four times indicted former President Mr. Trump. Now that we have that sorted out, his idea of negotiating peace is deciding which of the occupied territories to hand over to Russia, along with all Ukrainians who live there and would continue to suffer under long-term occupation. Lack of military action does not mean peace. It just means suffering with no military action. Now that we have that clear, the only person who can end the war in 24 hours is Russian dictator Vladimir Putin by withdrawing his forces from Ukraine. Certainly not former President Donald Trump. And that'll be it for today. If you'd like to find out more about Russia's war crimes in Ukraine, we've included a link with a very comprehensive source in the description. Join me on the next episode which will be a special for Ukraine Independence Day on August 24th, as we continue to bring facts to the battlefield of Russia's special disinformation operation. And in the meanwhile, if you'd like to be filled in daily on everything that happens in Ukraine, as well as hear some sassy responses to Russian trolls, don't forget to follow me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Y-E-W-L-E-E-A. And please extend that same courtesy to Svidomi Media, also linked in the description of the podcast. Well, Slava Ukraini and FAQ you, Russia, and your special disinformation operations.